Good afternoon. This is Dr. Dan Guerra's Authentic Biochemistry Podcast in the Inland Pacific Northwest on today, the 8th, February 2023. This is going to be lecture number 25 in immunoepigenetics. We're going to pick up right where I left off when we were so rudely interrupted by those partitas. <clears throat> Anaerobic metabolism, even in the presence of molecular oxygen, in the liver in particular, is known as the Warburg effect. Now, that has been discovered and analyzed in many different forms of cancer, Every, everywhere from lung to liver cancer to kidney cancer, and also, of course, in cancers of the central nervous system. This has been observed for a long time. And what it describes are significant alterations of the uh, TCA cycle. And of course, that is associated to some degree with all the intermediary metabolism I did in the partitas. So now that you're fully aware of that system and all the regulation of the male aspartate shuttle, I don't have to go over it right now, right? because this is about immunoepigenetics. So I want you to have that whole backstory in mind, all that intermediary metabolism. We have to, to follow along with what the literature is presenting to us. Now, remember that, of course, TCA is going to be linked to oxidative metabolism. And that means that there are going to be redox reactions associated with copper and iron. So keep all of that in your mind. Now, there's a reaction called the Fenton reaction. And that's part of what we are calling now a certain kind of cell death called ferritosis. You can tell iron's going to be involved there, right? You also know that iron being absolutely essential for redox and for therefore and therefore the electron transport chain and oxidative phosphorylation, just to name one thing, is significant. You have to also know that iron is necessary for normal reproduction, cell mitosis, as well as most of the activation linked to innate immune responses. So iron oxidation state plays a major role in the shifting of carbon use in macrophages and monocytes, thus delivering the potentiating pro-inflammatory state, which can then derive a full immune response. Obviously not just the iron, but the iron associated with proteins. But iron itself, because it can go through that ferrous to ferric oxidation reduction state, can lead to the production of reactive oxygen species. So remember the, the whole Fenton reaction. We've talked about this many times in the past. Basically, it will be involved in generating carbon and oxygen-centered radical species. Now, these radicals are going to have unpaired electrons, and you're going to generate, because of that production, a dissolution of the peptides that normally hold the iron, such as the heme-containing proteins and the iron-sulfur centers. That can induce the production of free 
intracellular iron. So remember that ferrous iron can donate an electron with hydrogen peroxide to produce the hydroxyl radical, the most potent of all oxidative species that can cause DNA, RNA, protein, and lipid damage. So the hydroxyl radical is the most potent of all the re reactive oxygen species. And the reaction that I just described there not only damages the lipids and proteins, but it also, as I said, can be a direct cause of oxidative mutational damage to DNA in the nucleus and RNA scattered around the cell. So the release of free iron catalyzed also by heme oxygenase, which we've talked in the past about, can also generate reactive oxygen in the mitochondrial membrane. Now that will lead to ferritosis. Now that has been described, which is, I'm just explaining there, has been described in a certain treatment used for cardiomyopathy when doxorubicin is part of the pharmaceutical um, containment involved in controlling cardiomyopathy. Now that suggests, or maybe even indicates, that ferritosis is a important component of not only cancers, but also cardiovascular disease. Clearly it is, uh, and it's been well described. This is just like an introduction to it. Now you all know that there are multiple epigenetic regulators. Now I'm telling you that these epigenetic regulators, methylation, acetylation, microRNAs, to name three major components, are going to be directly involved in the induction of ferritosis and subsequent oncogenesis. So there is, we, there is a series of mechanisms where ferritosis-targeted tumor intervention could play a role in controlling metastatic cancer. And so that means any epigenetic mediation of ferritosis might be related to that pharmacotherapeutic intervention. And that's why people are starting to look at it, not just as a cause of tissue damage, tissue degradation, that's what ferritosis will do, and also an inflammatory response, which could be quite dangerous to the system, especially if it becomes chronic and it happens in certain vascular beds or, for example, in the central nervous system. But the, for the same reason it could be damaging, it could also possibly, via epigenetic modification, be used to target oncogenic events before, that is, at the prodromal stages of cancer. Okay? So you've got pharmaceutical industry interested in this. You also have, of course, the entire regulon of, of uh, pathophysiology. So ferritosis is a form of this reactive oxygen, reactive carbon driven by an iron-dependent lipid peroxidation. When it was first discovered was by targeting RAS mutations. Now, you remember RAS is an oncogene. Now, the first time that was studied was back in the early 2000s. And in this case, there was a small molecule from the pharmaceutical industry known as erastin. And it was identified 
to be a selective inducer of non-apatotic death. And so it was examined. A few years later, there were tests done on genotype-specific anti-tumor activity of this compound, erastin, chemical structure later. And that was those were discovered in various RAS mutation cancer cell lines, confirming then, this is what I mentioned last time we were at the studio on immunopogenetics, confirming that the RAS, BRAF, MAP2 kinase, MECMAP kinase, ERK pathway associated with the voltage-dependent anion channel was linked to oxidative stress and ultimately mitochondrial dysfunction. And that all of those then were linked in papers published between 2003 and, say, 2020. All of those were linked and were obviously required for erastin-induced cell death. So the VDAC2, that's the voltage-dependent anion channel, and VDAC3 are also directly targeted by the erastin. So that means erastin-induced cell death was what was what was sequentially prior to the iron-dependent program cell death, and that was when it was named ferritosis. Now that was only about eleven years ago, twenty twelve. So this erastin also will inhibit. I hope you remember this from a few lectures past. The cysteine, that's the disulfide cysteine, glutamate transporter system known as the XC minus. That, of course, if you inhibit that transporter, you're going to generate cysteine starvation. And with that, because cysteine is the major component, glutathione depletion, and consequently, what do you think will result? Oxidative death of the cell and of the tissue surrounding whatever cells, this has been induced. So that's how erastin seemed to be functioning. So, again, I'm giving you the history so that you can follow along with where we're going with the epigenetic profile. So there are two components that contribute to ferritosis. I already explained one that's generating free iron. The second major biochemical event is the accumulation of lipid peroxides. So erastin-induced iron accumulation, which of course can be inhibited by iron chelation and in association with antioxidant induction, but also by the genetic inhibition of cellular iron uptake, because that's what's necessary for reactive oxygen production, and which would result in that lipid peroxidation, the corruption of the membranes, and then subsequent ferritotic cell death. So free iron changes the free pool, or also known as the labile iron pool in the cell. Now that's as a result of increased uptake decreased storage, and ultimately the breakdown of iron-containing proteins, as I've mentioned. But it can also occur when there is a malfunction 
of iron exportation. So that's another whole aspect. We know that there are certain diseases of the liver, such as hemochromatosis, which are linked to an increase in iron deposition in the hepatocyte, causing ultimately, well, initially fibrosis, then a form of hepatitis, and then, yes, directly ferritosis linked to cirrhosis. And then ultimately can also be, once that's not regulated, because of this continued fibrosis and mutational effects, hepatocellular carcinoma linked to obesity. Of course, all those, all those states leading to obesity are linked to free fatty acid. We talked about the lipotoxicity of free fatty acids, particularly corrupting insulin-regulated metabolism in the liver and the, and the overgeneration of glucose via gluconeogenesis. Remember, we were talking about that in those Partita lectures. See, the Partita lectures, yeah, they look like they were a breakaway. And by gosh, I even talked about a plant biochemical system, and I don't feel at all embarrassed by that. But I did that to explain a couple of things. Again, motifs of uh, reductionist theory and biology. Of course, that was one of the motifs. But the other was so that you would understand how liver toxicity can come in multiple integrated biochemical event ontologies. And this is just another one. It's a very potent one, as it turns out, too. Now, you know, being good biochemists or biochemistry students, that iron, again, is found in heme-containing, often mitochondrial proteins. Of course, what's a major heme-containing protein also is the globin protein, hemoglobin, right? And myoglobin. So there's the two other very important iron-containing proteins. So ferrous iron can react chemically with hydrogen peroxide directly to form those hydroxyl radicals. That leads to a further excess accumulation of free iron after reacting with polyunsaturated fatty acids, which is going to give you oxylipids or lipid peroxides. Now, ferritin, which is an important component of the iron transport system, degradation of ferritin will also occur via another cellular fate known as ferritinophagy. Now, that is a form of autophagic degradation of ferritin by nuclear receptor coactivator 4. That's also known as NCOA4. Accordingly, when you knock down or overexpress NCOA4, you prevent or trigger erastin-induced ferritosis, respectively. So take all that information together, and what you can see is that there's a tremendous regulation at the biochemical, physiological, genetic, and epigenetic level of heme associated with mitochondria and ferritin, because both together critically mediate labile iron pool composition in terms of oxidation state, that is quality and quantity, how much is there. And of course, that's going to be directly linked to lipid peroxide formation, and then the subsequent sequel to that, which is ferritosis.
Okay. Now, I want you to go back. We talked about this a while back, but I want you to just follow along here. Lymphocyte specific helicase, also known as LSH, is an ATP dependent helicase in sucrose non fermenting tube. And it plays an important role in normal cell development, metabolism, and cancer progression. Now, notice I said it was <laughs> a protein called SNF2, right? Sucrose non-fermenting 2. Now, what does that tell you? That tells you that that helicase was associated with a loss of sucrose utilization. Now, this is in the animal system. This is a lymphocyte specific, but it's not involved in sucrase activity. It's a helicase. That's a DNA, ATP-dependent enzyme. Okay. So this LSH, this lymphocyte-specific helicase, is known to inhibit baritosis, but at the same time, it is linked to lung tumorigenesis. And here's where the payload is. It's because lymphocyte-specific helicase alters the expression of metabolic genes through chromatin retailering phenomena. Now, when you think chromatin retailering, that can happen without epigenetic markers. That is the installation of methylation acetylation, for example. But also, you can get epigenetic phenomena related to the readers of methylation patterns, say, on cytosine residues or methylation patterns on histone lysines. But remember, those readers, like the bromodomains, can also function to cover those methylated groups and thus allow for those methyl groups to pass mitosis and end up in the subsequent generation of the cell. Okay, now That's the important thing about the readers. Right. And some of those readers are basically just placeholders. Remember a while back, we also talked about you can move a suite of methylation patterns around on certain DNA elements, either in the promoter region, which could effectively inhibit transcription, and then move them into the um, intron-exon junctions, actually enhancing transcription of the same gene. Thus, the regulation there is an epigenetic phenomenon, right? a natural regulation. So that's all standard chromatin retailering. It's not simply the retailering associated with you know, transcription factor complexes and helicases and, and the single-stranded binding proteins and the reassociation of histones, sliding histones around. A lot of that has to do with very rapidly turned over epigenetic phenomena, such as the histone code acetylation pattern on specific lysine residues on, hist on histones three and four in particular. So uh, all we want to know right here is that this lymphocyte-specific helicase is linked to lung tumorigenesis and it's involved somehow in chromatin retailering. And so this LSH enzyme causes a recruitment of 
the WD repeat domain 76. Now that's a transcription factor. So the WDR 76 binds to metabolic gene promoter regions. Now, one of them, we mentioned this a while back. I'm trying to think when, at least a year ago. One of the genes that this LSH uh, protein regulates okay, is stero-CoA desaturase and fatty acid desaturase too. Now, those genes are SCD1 and FADS-S2. So any upregulated expression of a stero-CoA desaturase or the more common generic fatty acid desaturases, like a delta-6, delta-5, right, will block veritosis by altering lipid reactive oxygen species accumulation and speciation, and in so doing, alter iron accumulation. And you know, those are the two major pathophysiological events of ferritosis. Now, again, I say pathophysiological, remember, put a, a, a huge scare quote around that, because the ferritosis was induced during an oncogenic event, you see, because here you're getting tumorigenesis because the ferritosis is shutting down. The ferritosis itself can be mutational because of the iron and reactive oxygen. It could induce a new oncogenic event. But if it was controlled prodromally, and probably it is controlled naturally via the regulation of free iron pools, as we've been mentioning, it could actually prevent the oncogenic event or at least slow down the gradation into more serious cancer. Okay. And it seems like these fatty acid desaturases play a role. Of course they do. When you put more double bonds into a fatty acid, it is more labile to the oxidative events that will lead to lipid peroxides, which, as we said, is a hallmark of peritosis. Okay. So, uh, let me check my time here because I know we've been talking a while and I know how I get. Yeah, we got time. Okay. All right. Now, there are EGL9 homologs. These are called EGLNs. And don't worry, these are other proteins associated with signal transduction. I know I'm bringing in a lot of new players here. And I usually describe them when I bring them in, but I want to get through the epigenetic association. So I'm just going to bring it up now. Don't worry, I'll go back. I'll talk about all these proteins probably in one lecture, and I will resynthesize what we're talking about here like I always do. So you've got these EGL9 homolog proteins called Eglins. And of course, one you are familiar with, C-MYC. Now those proteins, which are going to be oncogenic players, participate in this ferrotonic event. So the EGLNs, which are actually, I'll tell you a little bit about their activity, they're enzymes. And what are they involved in? They cause the degradation of the hypoxia-inducing factor 1-alpha. So 
the EGLNs degrade HIF-1-alpha, C-MYC is recruited, and the lymphocyte-specific helicase is transcribed. Okay? So that's the series of events. Of course, what, what's the end product of that? You got an increase in lymphocyte-specific helicase activity. Okay, and you know I just told you that's a very important protein, even though it's named for sucrose non-fermenting too, in controlling normal cell development and in regulating cancer progression. And I told you that this LSH inhibited ferritosis, and along with that, in the animal model, lung tumorigenesis. Okay, so now we're all the way back to where we were. Uh, what, five minutes ago. Now you know that there's another protein player that's going to be involved. It's an enzyme. It's going to be involved in the degradation of the epoxy-induced factor 1-alpha. You know what that does? That's regulating all the genes that are involved in the epoxy event. That is linked to directly that early stages of oncogenesis when oxygen levels are depleting and a whole new suite of genes can be expressed because of that hip-1-alpha. Some of them, one of them in particular, is going to be related. Is going to be related to gluconeogenesis. Okay, again, go back to those Partita lectures. Right? You see, how intermediate metabolism never leaves the center of activity when we're talking about pathology. Never, never, never. It's always there. You just have to look for it, analyze where it is located, and then synthesize the entire matrix event. And that's what I do in authentic biochemistry. And we're getting there quickly today. So this S-CoA desaturase enzyme, which of course is significant for the important first step, particularly in de novo monounsaturated fatty acid synthesis. What's the product of that enzyme? Oleic acid. Okay. Now, that, that enzyme, it catalyzes the rate-limiting step of monounsaturated fatty acid synthesis actually inhibits ferritosis. Now, why would that be? You put a double bond in that fatty acid. Yes, but only one, and that's oleic acid, okay? Remember 18 colon 1 delta 9 cis, right? But what else that will do when it's synthesizing that? Because it's part of that reaction. It will inhibit ferritosis because it will increase the Coenzyme Q10 binding protein. Now, that it'll increase the amount of that protein that's expressed because it's necessary for the desaturation of sterate to oleate. Okay? And we talked about that not that long ago either. Now, again, coenzyme Q binding protein 10 is an endogenous, as well as playing a role in steroid desaturase, an endogenous membrane linked, endomembranous linked, antioxidant. And when it's depleted, you are going to get that production of labile iron and then the subsequent potential sequelae, ferritosis. Okay? Now, I know that's a lot that we've already discussed. I'm going to look at my time again because now I'm going to start talking about long non-coding RNAs being associated with ferritosis as well. See, I'm putting all of these players together so that we can do that great synthesis 
and you'll understand the epigenetic regulation of all of the system. Now, remember, we're talking about lymphocytes here. The lysate enzyme is in lymphocytes. And we're talking about ferritosis. We're talking about a linkage between a massive amount of inflammation and programmed cell death via ferritosis, which is, is, is pro-inflammatory, unlike canonical classical epitosis. Ferritosis is very pro-inflammatory, plus mutational. There's all that, but th we're talking about that in league with an understanding of lymphocyte biochemistry. This is all happening in lymphocytes, such as T cells and B cells. All right? All right. So we have the epigenetic markers coming in. We have the uh, intermediate metabolism now, hopefully under somewhat of control in terms of what we need to have to follow through to the next level about these long non-coding RNAs regulating ferritosis. If we're going to lead through that whole ferritonic event, talk about pathophysiology of that, right? Excess iron, right? Reactive oxygen, cell death, inflammation, and then the potential as a therapeutic by tinkering with epigenetic phenomena, which of course I'm much more skeptical of, right? All right. It's Dr. Dan Guerra again. I think, yeah, it's the eighth day of February. 2023. Hope you enjoyed that lecture. That was 25 immunoepigenetics. And I'm saying bye for now.